0: Hello and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day.
1: Hi Chris. Hi Peter. In this edition of Dig It we chat to fellow of the Institute of Horticulture and founder of the Association of Professional Landscapers, Alan Sargent. It's a first for Dig It. We get to chat with a proper landscape gardener who over five decades has won countless awards including over 60 RHS, Royal Horticultural Society, medals at Chelsea, Hampton Court, Tatton Park and Gardeners World Live. Initially a project manager and constructor and increasingly a designer as well as a builder. Alan, a really warm welcome to Digit. It's a delight for us both to be able to chat to you today.
2: Wow. Thank you very much indeed. Delighted. I haven't seen you for a long time, Chris. Back at Chelsea, must be mid nineties.
1: It was it's indeed. Great to, talk to you again. Yes, it's really nice to, to to have you on board the the podcast. And I'll say, it's a first, isn't it, Peter? We've got a garden yeah. designer.
0: we never is... had a garden designer yet. It's brilliant.
2: <laughs> well, I've never, I've never, really, really, never really referred to myself as a garden designer. Strange as that might sound, I've been a, a builder of gardens, and I suppose because I started. Constructing gardens long before I started to design them. Uh, I've never really thought of myself as a garden designer, which is quite strange. I've done 36 RHS show gardens, but but my hat really is gardener. Mm -hmm. Landscape gardener, gardener, garden designer, whatever. Gardener is my basic line.
0: Excellent. Not a poet then? Because we've heard you've been doing some poetry as well in your lifetime.
2: I've written quite a few books. They're mainly. they're mainly, if you like, management-style books for the industry. But yeah. uh, I've I wrote a book recently, which is called Confessions of a Gardener, which uh, I've been the talk I've been giving for donkey's years to garden designers and societies and so on, uh, gardeners' clubs. And so, uh, just one of those things. I have been writing poetry especially for the last sort of three or four years because I could see a situation, and I, I, in my head, I start singing a song. Right. Uh, a well-known tune a new a tune that i know well shall we say uh-huh. and then I, st- I put words to it so if you, if you actually look at all of my poems like the the bandwidth of an ancient gardener and designer's lament and head gardeners laments i met a man who knows a man and so on That they're all actually you could sing them to tunes i've never tried doing that so i want to inflict the public but, um, <laughs> uh, and, and they just put them as a bit of fun and to be fair they, they, they you know they have um, they've gone down very well very popular shall we say yeah Mm, they've definitely struck a I'm definitely a lot of words (laughs) worth
0: they're very good though. they're very apt and lovely descriptive poems I think So, so well, that's, that's what I like to do, yeah.
1: Yeah, Alan, where, where, do, where do we start then? Um, did you always want to become a builder of beautiful gardens? Did you have a, a particular career path at a, a young age? Uh, please enlighten us. Well,
2: far, far from it, really. I was born and raised on a farm, and then when I was um, 18, I joined the police. A okay. uh, police cadet first, and then uh, a policeman, mm-hmm. a constable sergeant. And I was stationed in Chichester, and then I got seduced by London and moved to the Met's as a VC in the Met, but I hated living in London, so that was the end of my police career after about three years. So the only industry in our little village, where we lived little Hamlet, um, near Petworth, was in fact in horticulture. So having been jobless, which is quite strange, you don't don't ever expect to be Mm -hmm. jobless, Um, I took up a a career, as it were, in in horticulture, working with that particular little firm, and uh, I never looked back.
1: Indeed, Yes. So I mean we've got we've got a copy of your 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 book Confessions of a Gardener and we've really enjoyed reading it. Um, it's it's a lovely dip in dip out book. That's what I I like these days. Whether it's a, a short attention spans, I don't know, Alan. But uh, it's it's a, it's a great read and uh, yeah, well done with that. Um, could I just ask about your perhaps your strangest work brief? I mean, w- w- reading through your book, you've had some interesting uh, commissions in your time, um, but. Uh,
2: I think the strangest, the weirdest one, and the in the early 80s, I built a a, a lovely garden in Brighton with a, a brilliant garden designer called um, Robin Williams. Now he was my one of my heroes. Now this part of this garden was a big Japanese style garden. It was a shallow, large shallow pool uh, with several islands, which we created um, in you know as part of the part of the design. And finally, I forgot about the job. It had been you know been finished for for many years. And I had a phone call from the landscape architect to go down Of course, I recognised the name of the property. And when I arrived there, what had happened was the house next door had, had some uh, work done on the roof. And one of the scaffold oh. scaffold chaps had dropped a pole. that had glanced off the scaffold and then speared this pond liner. Well, in the, in the real world, you would get in there and after you know, maybe a day's work, drain the pond down and so on, you just repair it. You repair the liner. Not a problem at all, but this particular client was such a, 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 what, a pedant the right word for it. He, he wanted the most peculiar thing. He had this landscape architect uh, arrive. And my brief was, in fact, to to take all of the existing garden uh, away and bring it back. And in order to do that, we had to photograph everything and and then mark it out into square meters. Uh, and they wanted it all palletized, removed off-site, and then brought back again with a new liner underneath. You can imagine the amount of work involved in that. Yes, it was just absolutely so stupid, really. And for the sake of you know, and five hundred pound they could have a repair, and you're talking about at least a hundred thousand pounds to do this particular project. I wow. just said to him, you know, "You're mad." <laughs> he didn't appreciate that. I said, "Just think about what you're asking me to do. You know, there's no way the insurance company going to going to pay for that." No. So that really was the weirdest one. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're never going to be there. T- take away the garden and bring it back. Yep. Uh, exactly as it was, with nothing
1: different. No word, no. Uh, and thinking about you know, you, you obviously have worked on a lot of domestic gardens, Alan, over your time. Uh, have you had anything which is you know noticeable? You know, the largest, the biggest, something which has really uh, pushed your your uh, your 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 <laughs> your skills well, to the I maximum.
2: We've never, I've never, I've done a lot of domestic property gardens, big gardens as well as smaller ones. I mean, I've done some quite major um, schemes into commercial schemes. I did the new music schools at Eton College, for example, uh, Eton mm-hmm. Boys School. Um, but probably the, the biggest domestic garden was a wonderful place in, in Bishop's Avenue in, in, in North London. It was just a, such a massive uh, product I had 29 chaps on site with me, and there must have been 60 people working on site uh, including three pool engineers and and builders and and so on. And it was a it was a, a a crazy place in a way for a domestic garden because everything was just so huge and it felt like working in a in, in a in a town, but actually uh, in the garden so many people, so much activity. Um, but it was a fantastic job. It worked out in the end. But we had lots of strange things going on with with the with the, uh, with the designers and so on. Um, yeah, they just kept changing their minds. I mean, massively changing their mind. But they're paying for it. They, they pay for it every time. They wanted something built and didn't like it, and then they it taken away and then replaced with something else. But they just kept on paying. Mm. So that, that was a, a major project.
0: I suppose they're the customers you want, aren't they? Aren't they the ones that pay the bills? <laughs> <laughs>
2: they, they can drive you mad, though, because you put so much effort into, into trying to do something really well, really skillful. Yeah, and then having completed it, and then have it sort of trashed. It's almost like building I suppose like like building Chelsea show gardens, except we know they're going to get trashed at Chelsea, but not not in a domestic garden. So it's not, I suppose in a way, like never thought about that before. It'd be mm-hmm. like building a Chelsea garden in a domestic property and then taking it away just yeah. because the chap changed his mind. <laughs> that was a bit
0: weird. Gosh. And have you ever been mistaken for anyone else? Any mix-ups? Uh, it. it, it whilst you've been working? Me,
2: me, myself? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think so. I had some uh, mistaken identity type jobs. We had, we had one particular one, which was quite strange. It was the, the wrong address.
0: Oh, right. I mean,
2: that, that, that was definitely a mix-up. Um, there was a row of new bungalows, or newish bungalows in Haywood's Heath.
0: Yeah.
2: And they, all the houses were literally identical. So we arrived on site. We knew that the customer wasn't going to be in, because we were told that. And we went in the back garden, and they had a, a fairly plain patio, uh, you know, labs and, and we just ripped them up and put them in a skip, and, and, and that was it. And just about to clear off site until of half past four. And then the customers come home, and we thought, oh, good. And they're they're going to be very pleased with what we've done today. <laughs> wrong house.
1: Oh,
0: no. House.
2: <laughs> the, the garden designer had given us the, the wrong number. Oh. <gasps> And so it, it was obviously very embarrassing that happened had to be placed <sighs> up in the garden. And then it, it sort of went on from you know, a comedy of errors thing because having got the right house and met the right clients, um, the designer, who uh, to remain nameless, um, had chosen the wrong product. And um, so we'd ordered the wrong product because it had all been checked off and uh, and agreed and paid for. But because he, well, the, the the customer wanted to have natural um, concrete slabs, and his one they were grey, right. and the designer uh-huh. thought natural was going to be buff, uh-huh. so we bought in maybe eight hundred pounds worth of the wrong slabs. Whoops. So yeah. that was, and, that, and so it's a comedy of errors. That one just went on and on and on, but all because basically the designer had given us the wrong information and hadn't made you know made sure that his customer knew what was happening, which. I learned a lot of lessons from that particular job. Shall mm. we say? Yeah.
1: Mm. yeah. Check and double check. I suspect, isn't it? And uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Alan, you oh, in your book, you you have a uh, sort of saying: if it's if it involves water, it will go wrong. Um, well, this is an old landscape
2: sign because we know that every single time we put in a pond or a water feature, it doesn't go wrong. But of course, you've got capillary action and transpiration and. Mm-hmm. And, and natural splashing and so on. So, yes, you're going to have situations, no matter how many times you tell the customer um, that you know you, this is like an artificial feature and you will need to keep it topped up. But we just have that phrase, if it involves water, it will go wrong. But there's one particular chap I remember, he's an American lawyer in, um, in St. George's Hill. Yeah, uh, where do I begin? We built this really, really natural looking water feature, which was basically a pond in an embankment. The right. water appeared to come out from under some rhododendrons and disappeared uh, from the uh, from the uh, raised pool, as it were, and just dropped down into a hidden tank underneath. So it was completely recycling. Uh, was a, you know, quite a traditional way of uh, building these these um, projects. And so it was lovely. And after about three, four weeks, had the phone call from the and said, um, I think the pond's leaking. So I went and had a look at it, and yeah, the water had dropped down by about three inches, which is oh, you a know, mm-hmm. bit, bit worrying. So I checked it out very, very carefully, uh, and I you know, topped it up. And now I said, there you are, it must be fine now. And so I could see nothing wrong. The next day, the same problem. And after about the fifth day, then I had a husband on the phone, and he was furious. So I, I don't know what to do, you know, because when I, when I go there, the, the, the pond's drop down again. You know, I top it up. It never falls, no, it never went down more than that sort of three inches. So anyway, I decided to start doing a bit of uh, creative thinking and I put a few pencil marks on the rocks to show where the water was when I left it and then, what well, it was like the next day. So um, St. George's Hill is one of those strange places where you have heavy security and not allowed to work after six o'clock in the evening because there's no, we don't have any um, noise and so on for the um uh, for the for the residents so i managed to get permission from the security who i knew very well to sort of sit in the garden and try, try to figure out what's going on and so i'm sitting there about half past seven in the evening quarter to eight and suddenly this chap came through the hedge from next door carrying two large watering cans and started to fill up the watering can so of course i challenged him and said what are you doing he said "I'm oh, well, no, sorry he said uh, I, I just moved in next door uh, last month, he said. I've got a greenhouse at the bottom of the garden, but there's no tap. So I thought I'd borrow something from your stream. Because so the chap thought it was a natural stream.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, he was taking water, but not realising the problems he was causing. But, oh. So anyway, I, I, I emailed the uh, the lawyer and to explain to him, but I never got a reply. He just totally blanked me. So I thought, well... Uh, yes i have found your mystery i've sold your mystery and it was not my fault (laughs) Uh, and i I was going back 10 times it Uh, drives you mad you know what is going on mm,
0: but anyway that's good that was
2: a strange story yeah Mm, definitely
0: I i can remember i did a waterfall once for a customer and it was an old waterfall that was built out of limestone and the frost had got into the rock and it all crumbled and what have you and it looked lovely when I started, other than it was all falling apart. And then we rebuilt it for them, and I thought we'd done quite a good job. Mm-hmm. And the customer turned around at the end of the job and was like, well, "It's all new rock." Uh, it doesn't look natural anymore, and I'm like, well, <laughs> what, what? What do you expect? You've asked us to rebuild a rockery with a new rock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you want us to paint it? <laughs> sure enough, sort of a few months later, it had grown some algae over it, and it all looked a far far better that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is always fun working with people, isn't it? <laughs> this
2: is why I make sure that everything is in black and white and mm. clearly understood, and why you can get disconcerted by.
1: By things like the chap coming from next door and pinching the water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, um, obviously, with with our uh, our followers on on Diggit, I'm sure they would love to glean some advice on on a little bit of garden design tips. What would be your main three things to consider when you you know you're looking at your garden? and You maybe want to give it a a revamp, a, a redesign. What what do you think of the three? Well,
2: guys? I think um, it obviously depends on how long you've lived there, but let's just take a. Let's take a new garden. You've moved Mm -hmm. into a new garden. You're going to design a new garden from your old one. Um, Three things to consider. One is very important nowadays, is water movement. Mm -hmm. Water movement across the land. Now, where we live, I live in Sussex, and I work across the south of England, and we've got a great deal of clay there. But in fact, if you just spend out the money, about £150, and get a hydrological survey done of your garden, which includes the area beyond your garden. So you you give the, yeah. uh, you give the survey people uh, your address, and then they they do they build up a picture um, using Google Earth and a thing called LIDAR, and they can actually map the, the way movement, the water moves across your property and also you know, mm. your properties beyond. So you get an idea, really, if you're going to have any issues with drainage. Um, this is something which is fairly recent we can do in private gardens. But you really need to know your site. There's no good designing a garden if you don't know your site. So that's the number one thing to consider. The other really is um, what, how long do you intend to be there? Because if you're going to, you know, sell the garden in say five years' time in your in your scheme of things, then you want the garden to look good in five years' time. If it's going to be there, you're going to be there for the rest of your life. You need to look at things you know at least look at your, your age um your, the age group using the garden it, it's, it's it's got to be fit for purpose shall we say so fit for your purpose so i think those top those more than top three things uh all, all lumped together but think about what you're doing don't just design something just because you think it looks pretty because you can you can you know you can become completely
1: disenchanted with your efforts yeah, and you, you can very easily become a slave to your garden if you get if you get those things wrong. If you you put lots of low, if you don't put the low maintenance elements in, you can be uh, forever going out there pruning, trimming, planting, replanting. Uh, I suppose. Yeah,
2: yeah. That, that's a, a phrase that I always avoid is low maintenance because what is low maintenance?
1: Yeah,
2: people mm. expect people expect no maintenance, and of course that's just not possible. <laughs>
0: Well, that's it. uh, Have you noticed, uh, uh, having read your book, it's obvious that you've worked all around the world. Have you noticed that some of the different countries have different attitudes towards the garden and the lifespan of the garden?
2: Well, really, uh, the UK, Britain, is head and shoulders above anywhere else in the world. And I seriously mean that. It's not just because I'm a British show garden uh, designer, a show designer, a garden designer. Uh, America, yeah, that they've got, they're big and they're bold and so on. But they're, they're mainly for hard wearing um, plants. So you'd have, for example, your lawn uh, wouldn't be the nice fine fescues that we have. You'd have like thing called Kentucky Kentucky bluegrass, which yeah. you'd never ever have in this country because it's very sharp and you now it, it it's made for it's fit for purpose. It's fit for for their particular region. I've, I've worked in, uh, I haven't done actually work in America, but I worked a lot to enough in Russia. Um, around about the turn of the century several okay. projects in, in St. Petersburg and Moscow um, so you have to work with with what you've got and you have to work with the what will work in that area so it's no good looking at British plant schedules um, when when you're working in, in, in Moscow or Gibraltar Spain, France, Belgium Germany, Italy, I've worked all over the place you look at what works there you don't try and impose your own your own plants and your own
0: planting ideas
2: on no, on foreign soil.
0: Mm. Yeah, because I guess palm trees don't do too well in St. Petersburg. do you? <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. that's good, excellent. And you've worked with um, some very famous people. I mean, the ro- uh, the late Prince Philip and Princess Alexandra. I haven't worked with them. Oh, sorry. No, no, no,
2: uh, no. I, I have, I, I've I've met them. Okay. Them, obviously, um, at, at Chelsea, mainly at Chelsea, but um, uh, the, you know, obviously, you you wait until you approach, shall we say, um, for you open discussions with somebody like Prince Philip. <laughs> but he was he was an absolute c- comedian. He really was, to my mind, he had just a wonderful, dry sense of humour, um, and you know he was he was really good for a chuckle. Uh, and you know, um, we, we meet we meet um, all of the family there really, and uh, they, they've each got their own way that they like to to go about the shows. Um, others like Princess Alexandra, well, I've met her uh, on several occasions because she's the uh, patron of the London Association for the Blind, um, which is now the uh, I forget they changed their name now to something else, but um she she was the the blind patron and so I, I met her quite a few times and when I retired from doing show gardens um, she presented me with an RHS bowl which is the great fine rose bowl which, um, yeah oh. I know that you know really nice relationships when 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 they obviously recognize you
0: uh, yeah.
2: when, when they come round so yeah
0: uh, and you've done a few gardens for for the blind haven't you
2: I've done, yeah, I've done. I don't know about eight, nine show gardens for the for the blind. That was the London Association for Blind, Action for Blind People. That was the other, the other um company, the other yes. charity. Um, th- that they, were, they were fascinating because I just refused to um, uh, to, to, tr- to try and just follow rote. The, the, it's always held in you know, a garden for blind people to disabled people you've got to uh, you've got to pander to their disability and yep. uh, I refuse to do that and uh, I worked with some very interesting people and I listened to what they were saying and one elderly lady lion lady she said to me that my nightmare garden is a half an acre of grass Who I have no idea where I am and so getting I'll get all this feedback all the time like my favourite garden of all was a a garden I desi- designed for, for children and okay. um it was all it was wonderful i thought because the reaction from these three children I, I worked with them i asked them what they wanted yeah and this young girl seven or eight years old she said she'd always wanted a swing oh. i had that in my, in my mind because they're not allowed to have swings because obviously they're dangerous in their in their um, in their schools yeah. um so i designed the garden so i went against everything and um so instead of having tactile, well, I had tactile, a big tactile raised bed, but it was full of volcanic ash. There's nothing more um, evil to, to, to handle than volcanic rock, mm. and the children loved it. They couldn't stop touching it because it wasn't tactile, it wasn't pretty, it wasn't smooth. Till shovels last year. They're they, they fascinated by it, and, and but the swing I think was the the, the highlight because I. Designed it in the corner of the garden. Had a big pergola, a triangular pergola, and so the original was a triangular pergola with a swing hanging from it. So instead of using ropes, I used chains, which I got from um, an agricultural engineer's um, agricultural um, company. And so these were spread at the top and then lowered and then narrowed down for the seat. So they could only you could swing, but you were restricted. Uh, to the, the, your lateral movement. And okay. I then put a big bungee underneath the seat so you could go backwards and forwards, but you were restricted. So you couldn't swing out and, and kick somebody else. But so you see, you get all of the sensation of a swing, um, but, you know, with a reason. And this little girl just sat there, and she cried her eyes out. And I thought, well, oh. now, that's worth any gold medal to me.
1: Wow. But so yeah.
2: even, even got better still because that David Bellamy came onto the garden, and I had a big... Um, a big part of uh, what we called um, uh, dinosaurs' eggs, which were large, huge glacier boulders, okay. and they were they were resined together, so they couldn't rock or move. So it was a big solid mound of rocks, and so you could clamber over them because they were really, really cold. They're like a marble type, mm-hmm. uh, and they they, were, they felt so pleasant to to sort of lay on, sprawl over, and so on. So I've got a photograph of David Benamy sitting on top of this pile of rock with his three children at his feet, and he's crying his eyes out. Uh, and I thought, that you know, this is worth all the medals in the world. Mm. Um, you know, you, you, can, you, you can have enormous fun doing these projects.
1: Yeah, and, and fantastic memories, Alan, by the sounds of it, too. I, I was going to say, Alan, how, how has your, your job changed over the years? You know, has it, has it all moved, you know, for the better, or...? What's your what's your current th- feelings about AI? Um, because that's obviously a, a big contender in our uh... how has, how have things changed? Mm. Um, how how do you mean?
2: Well, for because f- you've got you've got so many changes in materials. I think that's probably the, the mm. biggest the biggest change in in our industry is yep. the new materials, yep. the yep. new porcelain, the new artificial grass, the new the new the new. Mm. But these are old products, but they've now been have now been reduced in thickness, okay. so that you have, like, in 1990, say, you had uh, you used the sand, Indian sandstone, mm-hmm. and they were 30 to 35 mil thick, and they were solid rigid slabs. Nowadays, the same product is exactly the same. It's the same Indian sandstone, but it's now 20 mil, and it flexes, and and so you have to you have to work using a different logic. You have to stick the stick the uh, paving down. Using all sorts of resins and, uh, uh, and 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 mastics and so on to, to make to, to get the same job, mm. but you—it's it's, landscape. You now is far more technical than it was fifty years ago. Far more technical. Okay,
0: that's interesting. And uh, uh, like the foundations and the sort of stuff that you never see but goes on underneath the products has yeah, is, is, is changed
2: because well, traditionally, again going back to the days uh, 50 years ago where you had Yorkstone and sandstone and, and um, quarry tiles and so on. You'd always put them on a concrete raft right? and everything was impermeable. But yeah. today we have to use permeable because of um, what they call the uh, sustainable drainage um, regulations, the yeah. SUDS regs as they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything has to be permeable. So now you've got thin materials. We have a permeable base, which is MOT type 1. It's basically uh, planings that go underneath these road building. So the the water percolates down. And then the jointing material you use to, uh, to to fill the gaps between the slabs also has to be permeable. So everything now is permeable or totally impermeable. And the problems that can come by mixing the two um, are, are massive because you know, water has to drain freely through paving nowadays. Uh, the construction methods have changed that's the biggest one I suppose Mm -hmm. Uh, new new techniques uh, where we use lasers a lot now because instead of using a spirit level or or the old water level as as I used to use um, it's, it's only done with lasers nowadays Mm. Yeah. But they,
0: I, I, having used them myself that I, I do think they're a little bit easier because you can now do a level across 10-15 metres rather than what you used to have to do with lots of little bits. levels. Well I
2: used and, to use a, a water level, real old fashioned the, the clear type of the water level Okay. Um, strange thing but the beauty of the water level which I, we have not got time to discuss now <laughs> is that you start off at the datum point so you'd measure down, you filler fill a so like three quarter inch pipe full of water yep. so you can see the water and then you you balance the two put an elastic band around so that you balance the two holding two ends yep. you can have 50 metre length uh, longest I used to have so you could you fix one end so that you knew where the the water was in relation to the because you put an elastic band at that point point. Yeah, yeah. and then you could carry this thing around the garden and you go around from the front garden to the back garden uh, around the corners you didn't have to have a sight line you just then measure down from the uh, elastic band to, to wherever you want to, to go uh, mm. and then put a peg in there to get your level wow, <laughs> wow. Oh. real old-fashioned yeah. stuff this is roman stuff <laughs> 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 I've yeah, that's, that's, that, that, yeah,
0: that, that's a fantastic technique i've not heard of that one before that's pretty
2: so easy is you can use it on your own yeah you don't have yeah. to have somebody holding the other end of the laser you know
0: yeah um
1: Alan we 've just briefly mentioned about the, the charity gardens you you 've obviously helped to create. Um, what about wanting to you know be more creative with our, our own gardens with you know sensory um, design sort of methods your
2: own sensory design yeah. I would obviously the first thing i 'd tell you is you know why do you need a sensory garden? what are you being sensitive to so if you want um, you know, be creative with mm-hmm. your own sensory garden. You need to say, well, what am I? What am I trying to be sensorized for? If it's for sight or for hearing, and so on. So mm. you, you you design around your own needs, your own requirements. Sure. Yeah. So you can get as creative as you like.
1: You can indeed. I suppose that's it. I mean, we do get. Well, uh... Let's
2: give you a, a little little example. Um, mm. One very elderly lady. She loved her garden, and but she couldn't get out. She couldn't get outside at all. She just sat in her wheelchair indoors. So, the garden I designed for her had lots of, of different sounds uh, for different things and these were just like even like uh, not not chime bells or anything but just rustling bamboo leaves and so on. Mm. but I'd made it so that the garden could be changed using uh, using containers and and palletized um, elements so mm. you you could change the garden uh, uh, three or four times a year to give her a lovely garden all year round. Mm. You, you can be creative um, with, with somebody who's actually a captive, a captive, uh, captive um, viewer, mm. um, and you can move the garden around and, and always give a, a great vista. Yeah, brilliant oh, idea. Yeah. And
0: who were your loonies? You, you
2: shouldn't invite these people on your programme, did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, got a head full, I've got a head full of ideas. You know, i just. Even I'm 76 years old, and my head's still bursting with ideas. Good to hear. That's so good That's, to hear.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And who so gave you inspiration? And who were your luminaries in the world of landscape gardening?
2: Inspiration? Well, uh, individuals. I think I don't um, necessarily have any. Uh, I mean, Robin Williams. He was. He was the, the main man, main designer. He's brilliant. Brilliant man. Um, but it was the, the influence of some people. I see garden, particular garden designers, uh, who bring an influence to to like, show gardens, which are then copied by the public and by by uh, by fashion. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think definitely number one, Robin Williams. Uh, another great character is uh, is, is um, a, a guy called Mark Gregory, and Mark Gregory is an unbelievable character. Um, he's designed and built. Well, over a hundred RHS show guns. I've done 61. He's left me for dead. I never catch him.
1: <laughs> uh,
2: but his stuff is is, is is really big. He he's well known recently for the the Yorkshire Garden at Chelsea. But um, Mark Gregory is just like a, a legend in the industry.
0: Mm.
1: And and Alan, what have in your what have been the sort of fads and fashions you you know design-wise you've come across the years? I mean, they do say you know fashions of fashions and fads do come round in circles. Uh, are we are we going through a, a a new phase at the moment or?
2: Um, fashion design-wise, well, the moment, of course, the, everything everything is in, involved around the wildflowers and rewilding and so mm. on. Uh, which is a nonsense, to my mind. It is a nonsense. I don't mean that rewilding's a nonsense, but in in your garden, you cannot create uh, a, a wild area uh, in your garden. It just becomes weed-infested, and uh, it it's it's so much work involved, and so much thought, and skill, and 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 horticultural knowledge to 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 be responsible for to manage a wildlife garden is one of the hardest things to do and the, the the fashion design of just calling it rewilding and letting it just let it run wild two different things mm-hmm. so yeah. that, I, I think that was going to be going out of fashion because <laughs> people realize you can't sell a garden that's full of that's full of stinging and dandelions but, oh, um,
1: which we which we, we can
2: do much much better things much much better things I mean Alan Titchmarsh talking about a luminary great great um great cat was a friend of mine but um he he's, he's such a wise old head he really is, and uh, he just said. You know, Many of the plants that we want to attract um, bees and wildlife in the garden, they've are they they've come from all over the world. So you don't have to have this fixation and rewilding on things that have only been in England for the last 2,000 years. No, you,
1: you could look at it right across the board. Yeah, there's a current thinking, isn't there, in, uh, in the gardening world that, yeah, you, you do need your native species, but actually with... Global warming and climate change is to have the all the other biodiversity of other plants from other parts of the world to make sure that we're in a, a better and safer place uh, to secure our future. Yeah, we're, we're
2: think mm. think about the bees, think mm. about the insects. Yeah, and that that really is the the be all and end all. To, to create a perfect wildlife garden, you've got to attract wildlife. Indeed, I don't mean rabbits and badgers, but uh, you, you get the insects. You get well, once so you get the insects, then you get the birds, and then the whole thing just rocks and rolls. Mm, sure, yep.
0: and so uh, I take it from that you're not a fan of no Mo may then.
2: No, <laughs> in a word, no. <laughs>
0: yeah, we've had uh, quite a few discussions on mm-hmm. this uh, program about whether it does benefit the lawn or not, but I, I think it benefits the dandelions and. Um...
1: <laughs>
2: yes, oh, it does. Yes, yeah, yeah. it does. But as I said, it, to do it properly, it, it's, it's a
1: great art, really. Yeah. So my my next question, Alan, which, I mean, please feel free not to answer, is is how would you create your perfect wildlife garden? Would you just make sure you've got the right plants which attract those uh, bees and butterflies um, on their merits as individual plants?
2: I think you to create the perfect uh, wildlife garden, You've got to say so decide really who, who what you want to attract, mm-hmm. and you should really concentrate, I think, on the birds and the bees because they're the important ones. Yeah. And, and hedgehogs are, are wonderful, of course, um, but you know not every garden's going to get a hedgehog. No, yeah, a perfect wildlife garden. Yeah, you need a corridor. You definitely need a, a hole in the on the in the fence uh, for for that reason. Make it no bigger than a, a four inches or six inches you don't want foxes and badgers trying to get through but, um, but you do want to attract you know you do want to attract the the, the little things mm. the voles and the and and the and the and the, uh, and the uh, hedgehogs
1: for sure yes um, um the next question uh, and in view of what what's been said uh, are you are you a fan of the garden makeover the garden makeover. Uh, mm-hmm. Well,
2: <laughs> you mean the TV programmes?
1: Yeah, I mean the, the the sort of twenty-four, forty-eight hour quick fixes. No,
2: no, they're oh. absolute nonsense. They were nonsense twenty-five years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and they caused the industry thirty years ago caused the industry a lot of problems in the landscape industry because the the, the garden the television companies just make it look ridiculously easy, and of course you try and copy those garden programmes, and that, that, it'll fall apart. The garden will fall apart within a week. You know, yeah. you, you can't build a deck with only one screw. <laughs> just, just crazy, crazy, crazy. I think it is going for, it is going for the the I don't know the sort of the entertainment value. Nothing at all to do with um, with educating people and that. Mm. No, I'm not a fan at all. No.
0: So I mean, one of the things that we picked up quite a bit is how fake these programs are. In the sense of, they 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 put things together that just won't work.
2: Well, I think one of the most ridiculous ideas they had on one of the programs. They had a pile of turf left over, mm-hmm. and obviously was ordered by far too much for their the little project. So they had a, a wooden lap fence which was between the two gardens. Yeah. So they stacked these um, these turfs into a, into a, a settee against the against the, the next door neighbour's fence. Oh. And said, well, how, "What clever people we are! And of course, all you're going to do is rot out next door, fence.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and,
0: and they're showing it on television. That yeah. was just crazy. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely caused some issues. I think in in our industry, it is, hasn't it? it? Yeah,
1: that's a um, so uh, looking at your your, your garden um, design, well, your construction work at the uh, the Chelsea Flower Show over the years, um, Alan, any particularly memorable moments of? Uh, what, 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 when you were working on those gardens? Oh,
2: far too many, far too many. Far too many.
1: Just, too many. just, just a couple of them, please.
2: The, the, well, the most memorable one got to be the year that, um, you know, for six consecutive years we, we designed and built. Uh, no, that's, that's not true. We built three gardens each year at Chelsea. There's 18 Chelsea show gardens in six years. Wow. We okay. built them as contractors, as constructors. Now, we, I designed one of those each time. But in 1997, because of a series of um, situations, uh, I was called upon to, in fact, to design and build three gardens at the one show because uh, somebody pulled out a big time uh, a few days before the show opened. Oh. And that, that really was something else because to design three gardens, building three gardens is not a problem. Because I had, the, I had the staff and I had the equipment and I had the plants and, and, and everything else. And if you're going to build one garden, you might as well build two. That's the way we, we think because you've got the crew you crew there, so it's not a problem. But three gardens, that really was a brain ache. And um, yeah, that, that was do it all um, Bradstone and um, Barclays Bank. So I got a huge amount of publicity from that. It will never happen before, it will never happen again.
0: Mm. And that was definitely a unique year. Definitely. Yes. And no, talking about creating your show gardens, where do you get your plants from? Do you have a stock of plants that you use? Or?
2: Um, I used to have. I used to have a nursery near to where I live in Petworth. And I had all my Chelsea stock plants there because you could buy new every year. So if I was building a garden, I would do it on a, on a lump sum. So right. if somebody wanted to pay me £100 to build a garden, I would spend as much as I wanted on plants because they were my plants. Yep. So at the end of the show I take them back and put them in stock. So over the years I've created a, a pretty impressive um Chelsea stock plant um archive if you like. mm had So wonderful aces. They were hundred year old aces in thousand litre containers.
0: Wow.
2: Uh, I've still got them, they're at my son's yard now and uh, but I don't no, I've stopped doing Chelsea now. Yeah. Um but yeah, I, I had enough Chelsea stock plants to actually put build a garden just as I did in 97, mm. uh, within three or four days of being asked to build it.
0: That's fantastic. So, yeah, you know, that, 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 those were the days. Mm. And did you manage to rent them out to anybody else, like sort of TV sets? No, or? no we ne- yes. I
2: never rented any plants out. Anybody, the way Chelsea works, I mean, obviously there are those commercial people who do rent out plants, so not, um, I'm not decrying them at all, but the way I operated at Chelsea was that anybody could borrow anything they wanted as long as they bought it back at the end of the show. And this is the the whole ethos, really. At Chelsea, especially Chelsea, um, we're all all working under intense pressure. And so, if anybody is, you know, if somebody's bricklayer hadn't turned up, or they, they run out of sand, and it's an end, or whatever, everybody lends each other, borrows from each other, and at the end of the show, as we hand that back, whatever we borrowed, and it's a, it's a magic magic place. Magic. That
1: sounds good. Sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, Chelsea. Um, and likewise, Alan, y- your own career highlights. Um, I was reading. Uh, obviously, you worked uh, many times with uh, the late and great Peter Seabrook.
2: Well, P- Peter was. Um, he was more than uh, more, more than late and great. He was. He was a, a mentor to me. He didn't mean to be. <laughs> he was because I used to. Um, I used to try and. And build gardens that I could sell. Does that make sense? Uh, if I would stand out in the crowd and listen to the crowd talking about my gardens. And if somebody in the crowd said, I want that, I could do that, we need that at home, then I've done my job. If they're standing out in the crowd and I'm listening to negative um, comments, I know I can't sell it. So I've always built gardens that, that people want to have. And Peter Rogers, uh, Peter Rogers, well, actually Peter Rogers was a guy that did a lot of work with Chelsea, but, and also was another friend of Peter Seabrook's. Um, Peter Seabrook uh, used to work on the Sunflower uh, Avenue inside the main marquee. I built one garden there with him once, um, with Peter, with Peter um, Rogers. And uh, but Peter was—he was such an important influence because he would write. He wrote more than once in the in his newspaper. About Alan Sargent, who builds real gardens for real people, and he, he had that. He had that. He sort of took me under his wing quite a bit there, um, mm. by, by, promoting me, I suppose, but in in a in a in, in a really positive way.
1: Excellent.
0: Yeah, That's very lovely, good thing. We touched on it earlier um, about sort of garden designs around the world that you've done. Have you, have you got any highlights that you'd like to share with us? Any countries you preferred well, working in?
2: The most fascinating one, without doubt, and this is going back no, before the nonsense was going on now, that was in Russia. I mean, I had some amazing experiences working in Russia because I had a, a, a really, really clever an interpreter. Okay. And I had no idea what was going on at any time because uh, <laughs> it was a, a strange thing. I was put up at five-star hotels and treated like a king and so on. But I didn't know from one day to the next or one Hours than next where I was going to be taken next. Right. So I was taking around so many different projects, and get to, just to suddenly try and give a take, I know from the, the the English or the English garden designer, what would you do in this garden? What would you do in this garden? And that that was really weird, but it's fascinating. You just arrive in the middle of nowhere, the big cleared area of, of woodland and, and a house going up. And they say, okay, just find the garden. And just like that, That's what you expect you to come and up all these ideas. Okay. And it was it was, it was fascinating because, of course, you, you really haven't got time to even think about it. But uh, you I, I learned to sort of um, wing it in a way. I remember mean, w- one particular project, this young lady had uh, three or four young children. And um, she had all these heavy muscle men all around her. And uh, I was just asked about, okay, what am I going to do in this garden?" So I, thought, well, I haven't got a clue. But as I just looked around, I could see all these these wonderful trees and uh, fir trees and so on. So I had a sudden inspiration about having raised walkways with rope rope and edging and so on. So trying to describe that to the, um, to the interpreter, I suddenly caught the word um, "Indiana Jones." <laughs> and as soon as I said in, then you and so I could explain what I was going to do in the garden, and they just clapped their hands with glee. And that was it. And it's it, it, it just fun, it's just inspirational.
0: Fantastic. I guess it must have been a very hard job for the interpreter because Ooh. they probably don't have a clue about half of the plant names.
2: She was, she was, she was very good. She, was a, a, um, she worked in America for that 30 odd years, so. Okay. She was really switched on, and because she worked for a, uh, an engineering company, yep. she could speak technical language, um, wow. so she didn't uh, She yeah. was excellent.
0: That's, oh, good. that's good.
1: And, and Alan, re- reading through your, your, your book, Your Confessions of a Gardener, I, I see that you did a spell as a head gardener.
2: Well, I, I always wanted to, you know, when you do Chelsea and so on, you, you build it, trash it, build it, trash it. And I always fancied looking at the end of my career, and I was only 54 then, uh, I was thinking, to myself, uh, I would really love to to, to to do something a bit more creative. Mm. And I was approached by Goodwood Estates to um, to take on the job as head gardener. But the the carrot was they wanted me there, and it's on a five year five year agreement. In fact, I was there about six and a half years um, to oversee the installation of the Rolls Royce factory going in at the uh, at the grounds. Right. So mm. I oversaw that with my contractor's hat on, and um, so become part of the historic garden and also at the same time redeveloped the private garden so that that was fantastic it mm. really was, a, a wonderful, wonderful employer um, but after six and a half years I, I wanted to go back and do more consultancy work which is you know, I, was, I hadn't stopped doing that all the time, I was allowed to continue doing my consultancy work so it was a natural thing to, to move off at that time, I left there at 60
1: mm. and um we we talked a little bit about climate change a little bit earlier on, Alan. But uh, you know, do you have we are you are we starting to see the the effects of that coming into garden designs uh, in recent years?
2: I don't know about garden design as such. Uh, yes, a lot of people are looking at um, uh, doing what they call dry gardens, mm-hmm. and I think that going back to right, right from the early um, part of this particular thought. Um, Talking about um, water movements, Mm -hmm. people are much more aware now of of the effects of of water and um, on the ground, either drying it out or causing problems with heave. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think now garden garden designers are thinking much more of how the ground itself physically is moving and how it's reacting. Uh, And this is certainly within the Association of Professional Landscapers and Society of Garden Designers. This realization that you've got to look at the ground that you're working on Mm. is uh, is become really important. Mm.
0: And I guess as a accomplished designer and landscaper, have you got any advice that you'd give to someone thinking about going into your career, doing something like in your career path?
2: Absolutely. If you've got uh, you want to become a garden designer uh, and really as a career. I strongly suggest that you go and spend two or three years working with a good landscape company as a landscaper because unless you understand the requirements, needs and everything else of the materials that you're working with, the construction elements of what you're working with, you shouldn't be designing gardens. There's no good drawing pretty pictures uh, because pretty pictures don't work. You've got to understand what it is that you're committing onto, onto paper to make it work.
0: Very sage a designer
2: advice. must be, must have knowledge well beyond destroying body pictures. <laughs> yes,
0: absolutely. Yeah, that's very sage advice. Thank you.
1: And Alan, what, um, what is, particular aspects of your career are you most proud of, looking back over the, uh, over well, the show the work?
2: aspects i be proud of. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a proud person. I told you I'm a gardener. Um, <laughs> But I think when I founded the Association of Professional Landscapers, that's got to be a career highlight. That was in 1995. It's the most important and influential uh, group of domestic contractors in the world. And uh, run and organized by the HTA. Uh, It's it's difficult, very difficult to get into, but it's a great achievement when you do get into it. And then 2016, I started the um, Professional Garden Consultants Association, or the PGCA, We've got about fifty members. They're all very, very good garden consultants in a whole range of of different um, skill sets. Um, Ten of those are, in fact, um, expert witnesses. So that mm-hmm. that's become you know, become quite a big thing now. So I suppose those those two things. Uh, founding the the Landscape Library, which is two thousand and twenty, uh, which is a um, it's an educational um, uh, resource that is you know, that's really going great guns as well so yeah those, those three I think probably founding you know, starting off I, I've always been somebody who, who's, who's not going to say I, I wish I wish something would happen I wish something would happen if I wanted it to happen I'd make it happen which is a, a not an arrogant statement but I couldn't you know, I don't want to turn around and say um, you know, I wish somebody would do something about it I've always done it
1: absolutely good mantra to work to, isn't it yes
0: Alan, you've been shipwrecked on a desert island. Which plant or tool would you wish that you had in your pocket or in your suitcase to help (laughs) you survive on your virtual desert island?
2: Oh, without question, my Swiss Army knife. Without Without question. It it, it does everything, including a magnifying glass to light fire and all these various Mm -hmm. blades and tools and uh, a good pair of tweezers for pulling out thorns. Uh, it, it it's it's
0: a, it's a one man uh, one man kit, you know. Survival uh, kit. Yeah, it's yeah, <laughs> a very good <laughs> answer. Brilliant. Fantastic,
1: yeah. And um Alan, um we usually ask our guests for an amusing plant or or Go on, related story, however you 've given us so many wonderful recollections uh, of your adventures is there any other ones which does particularly stand out in your on your in your memory i, I really i really i wouldn't I, I could go on for hours <laughs> I really could I
2: think the 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 best adventures i had i think I hope it comes over in the book actually is because i I've, I've spent uh, a lot of time talking about the 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 Chelsea Show, the Chelsea Show, mm-hmm. the Chelsea show um, Gardens behind the scenes. I think with all of those behind the scenes things, if they, the BBC could make a program of what we, the contractors, we the garden designers do, the public would absolutely love it. I really, really would because there's some very, very funny stories there. Uh, but they're, they're all personal, and mm-hmm. um, I have mentioned quite a few of them in the uh, in the book. But I think things change so much in the early days of Chelsea when we first went on site there in 1982 it was over say 40 years ago the, the grounds were still open to the public you'd have the northern nannies walking around with their charges in their prams and, and a dog in tow, and um, toe it, and it, the public were allowed until about 10 days before the show opened so it was a, a life was so much gentler then much sweeter it really was yeah
1: well that leads me on to our, our final uh, little little talk here now on your, your book, uh, Confessions of Gardener, which also helps to support a fantastic charity, Perennial. Um that's the Gardener's Royal Benevolence Society. Um obviously you've got you've got connections with uh, that particular charity, Alan?
2: Um No, I haven't really got connections apart from the fact that they are uh, they're their APL partners and so on. Uh, I just know and love a perennial and mm. when I was written when I was writing the book confession to regard and i thought well really it's it's not not one of my usual type of books uh, which are management yeah. so i thought okay now i uh, decided to to pay four pounds per copy to perennial and um and that's the the deal i've got with them
0: that's so it.
2: they have got a stock in their shops and on their uh, on their website and if every copy you you buy that they will that they'll, they'll get four pounds and um and you can get hold of it through my website, which is www.alansargent.co.uk.
0: Perfect, Brilliant. and it is a great book. Thank yeah. you so much for writing it. It really yeah, gave me great. some giggles. Yeah, yeah it's a good one.
1: Lots of <laughs> lovely anecdotes <laughs> and, and lots of confessions, as the uh, as the as the title says, Alan. Which is which is great. Thank you very much, Alan, for, for your time today uh, on Diggit. Um, we've really enjoyed uh, chatting with you, and we've learnt. So much in the way of, uh, well, garden building. Um, mm, yeah, awesome. Yeah, put it all thanks together.
2: Thank you so much invite, invite me back
1: whenever you like. Thank you very much, Alan.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Alan. Bye, then. Bye-bye.
1: Today's show was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Chris Day and Peter Brown. The show was produced by Peter Brown. And our thanks to Chilton Music Therapy for providing the music. Thanks for listening. At Chilton Music Therapy. We want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives, from parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals, and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk.